0: So this morning we want to look at the first six verses here of Psalm 37 Uh, and I want to begin before we look at the text with with a simple question and it's a question that reflectively we should we really should ask um, often of ourselves and here's the question right now at this moment how is your walk with the Lord what is one word that you would use to describe your walk with Christ. Some words maybe would be vibrant, joyful, exciting, deep, growing. Or some other words would be dry, apathetic, distracted, stagnant, even rebellious. Do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or do you just give to God a passing thought every now and then? These first six verses of Psalm 37, this text is in essence, a pretty simple text. And we're reminded in these six verses the, the, of the basics of, of our spiritual walk with God, our vitality with God. And what these verses do is they, they serve for us as kind of a spiritual checkup. And th- think about what, it, what this concept, this idea of a spiritual checkup means. We, we perform checks up, checkups on things that matter to us. We we go to the doctor for a checkup on a particular issue that we have or just a general health checkup because our health is important to us. We send our vehicles to mechanics so they can do checkups on them. We go to the dentist for a checkup. We meet with a financial advisor to do a checkup on our retirement savings account. We we have contractors come in and do checkups on our home if, if there's something wrong. We ask these experts to come in and check on things to make sure that everything is is in working order, is operating properly. And so this morning we want to let the Bible serve for us the purpose of doing a spiritual checkup. And so a few diagnostic questions before we look at the text. One, what is the condition of your heart toward God? What is the condition of your heart toward God? How do you feel in your relationship with Him? Another question, how much time do you spend with the Lord in word and in prayer? What occupies most of your thinking, most of your pondering, most of your mental bandwidth? What is it that you enjoy talking about the most? What has or who has first priority with your stewardship, with your time, with your skills, with your money, with your possessions? Even right now in this moment, how do you feel about being here, being here right now? Are you here with a sense of anticipation and excitement or are you here out of obligation Are you here and thinking this is a dreadful inconvenience on an otherwise relaxing Sunday morning? And so let's let today's text be a mirror into which we can evaluate where we are with Christ and do a sort of spiritual checkup. So look at Psalm 37, starting in verse 1, we'll read through verse 6. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Father, as we turn our attention toward this inspired word, Lord, that You've given to us, Lord, help us to Help me to preach it rightly, help us as a church to hear your word rightly, and then to obey rightly. Father, we confess that we are weak and frail, always prone to go our own way and, or in some ways forsake spiritual vitality and our walk with you. Lord, thank you that, first of all, you keep us. You will not let us leave. And so, Lord, as we consider the truth of Scripture this morning, by the power of the Word before us, the Holy Spirit within us, Lord, may we truly recalibrate areas of our lives individually and and, and as a church. Thank you, Father, for this Word. We find confidence and hope in this Word. Teach us from this Word. We pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen. A spiritual checkup. The first, first checkup point that we have here in verses one and two is don't want what the world has. Don't want what the world has. So David, David's writing, King David's writing this psalm and, and he, he begins this psalm and it's a constant contrast between what it seems like the world is having in terms of prosperity and, and benefit and good things and the righteousness of the saints and So he begins this psalm just saying, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. They will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. So the first thing that he tells us is that we should not fret because we know that God's hand of providence guides all the affairs of our life. We should not fret because we know God's hand of providence guides all the affairs of our lives. And so when he says here in verse 1, fret not yourself, it, it literally means don't get heated don't, don't get all worked up. Don't, don't work yourself into a tizzy over what's going on. And he comes and repeats the same thing essentially in, in verse seven when he says, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the evil man who carries out evil desires. And then in verse eight, fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. And so what's another word that, that carries the same idea, same connotation as the word fret here that maybe is more common to the way, the words that we use? Worry. Worry, right? We, we would more identify with the issue of worry. And so let me ask, are you prone to worry? And isn't it true that when we look at the world, we can absolutely be prone to worry, but we shouldn't because God guides all the affairs of our lives. In fact, Paul reminds us in Philippians 4 that we are to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God and then jesus when he's when he's teaching his disciples basic instruction in matthew chapter 6 he he knows that they're 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 a bit anxious about different things and he begins to tell them therefore i tell you do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body what you put on is not life more than food and body more than clothing Look at the birds of the air. And then he goes on and says, they, they don't they don't reap and they don't sow and they don't store in barns. But your father takes care of them. Aren't you of more value than they are? Look at the lilies of the field. Not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of them. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more take care of you? And then the command there in Matthew six is therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. And so we don't fret, we don't worry because we know that God's hand of providence guides all affairs of our lives. Like when, when we have a firm grasp, a firm conviction of the sovereign providential hand of God, we just see things in life differently. And we've, we don't, we aren't nearly as prone to the comparison that he's identifying here in verse one. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. But then also he goes on and and teaches us that we should not envy because we'll begin to desire what the wrongdoer has more than we desire God. This is the second half of of verse 1. Be not envious of wrongdoers. And so to envy the wicked is a temptation when we see them prospering. Isn't it true? We look around at some really dreadful people. (laughs) We look around at some really wicked people and it just seems like that their life is glorious. It seems like they have it all together. But when we envy the wicked, when we think, man, they are vile and wicked. And look at all that they have. Look at all that they've accomplished. And in contrast, look at me and look at where, where I am. When we envy the wicked, we're in essence doubting God's justice. We're doubting God's kindness. We're doubting God's fairness. And the problem isn't just that we envy what the wicked have. But we envy what we think the wicked believe their happiness and their perceived satisfaction, and for the Christian, envy is a killer. Envy is a killer for us. That's why envy is identified in the New Testament in several of the sin lists. So first Peter two one, put away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander. In Galatians five twenty one, Paul lists envy as one of the, the works of the flesh that are in contrast to the work the fruit of the Spirit. And so let me ask you, when you look at your unbelieving neighbor or your unbelieving coworker, your family member who doesn't follow Christ and it seems they're doing much better than you, how do you feel about that? How, does that? how does that make you feel? Do you want what they have? Well, the Bible says don't be envious of wrongdoers. Which brings us to verse 2. Why should we keep from wanting what the world has? Well, because they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. The evil, the wrongdoer, will soon fade and wither. They don't have what we have in Christ. They might seem as if they have it all together. They might seem as if they are excelling and advancing and being promoted far beyond where we are in life. But they don't have Christ the contrast to the, one, the evil doer and the wrongdoer that will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb is Psalm one three: the one who delights in the law of the Lord, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And so, what the evil doer, what the wrongdoer has, it will soon fade away. It's temporal. It's momentary. It's not eternal. It's satisfaction in the here and now. In Proverbs twenty four nineteen, we refret not yourselves because of evildoers, be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. We have to remember when we're looking out at the world and we're tempted to be envious that what we have in Christ is infinitely superior to the best that the wicked have, the best that the wicked experience. Proverbs twenty-three, seventeen. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all day. We have Christ. Think about this. Think about this. We have Christ. Why would we envy the world? We have that which is far superior than anything this world has to offer. So why would we be envious? But apparently we are prone to envy because the Bible tells us, be not envious. And so in contrast to, to looking at the world, then David goes on and gives us instruction to what the God followers should do. So here's, here's the, the diagnostic of the, the, the spiritual checkup. One, or do we look at the world and we think, well, maybe they do have it better than we have it. Maybe I would like some of what they have. Maybe I would like to pursue things the way that they pursue. And then he goes in and says, you're not going to be like the evildoer, like the wrongdoer. This is what you need to do. Number one, you trust in the Lord. You trust in the Lord. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. And so we believe rightly. There are two aspects of this command here in verse 3. And just so you know, in, in the language of the Old Testament, all of these command statements are in the imperative sense. And tense. and so there's exclamation points on all of these commands. There's an expectation that we are to obey these things. These are not suggestions or recommendations. These are commands. And so we are to believe rightly. Trust in the Lord. We must place our trust in the Lord, not in ourselves, not in our circumstances, not in our experience. We are to have what we would consider faith. Hebrews 11, 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So why can we why can we trust in the Lord? Well, it's there in, in verse three. It's not trusting in just some ambiguous entity. No, we're trusting in the Lord. Our faith is grounded in the object of our faith. We can trust in the Lord because He has committed Himself to us. We we can and we must trust Him. Our trust is in the Lord. He's the object of our faith. Verse three trust in the Lord. Isaiah 26, you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord is an everlasting rock. Familiar verses from Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And so the, David begins here with, with faith and and for good reason. One, faith is difficult for us because we, and when we truly trust in the Lord, what we are doing is we are relinquishing our sense of perceived independence. Here's what I mean. We think that we run the show. We think that we call all of our own shots. And we think that we have it all together. And when we are placing trust in the Lord, what we are doing is we are declaring to ourselves and to the Lord that we are relinquishing all the independence that we think that we have. And we are declaring ourselves not independent from God, but we're actually declaring ourselves dependent upon God. And so for us to trust in the Lord, we're making a confession of need. And so it's difficult for us to relinquish our, our perceived independence, but also we're always tempted to look at our circumstances and not rely on faith. We're tempted to look at what is around us and not rely on faith. And therefore, trust in the Lord and do good it kind of makes a little more sense when we think we look around us and we formulate a plan. We put together a strategy. We move. We just do what makes good sense. And oftentimes we do this without ever engaging faith. Without ever engaging faith. Faith. We're tempted to look on our circumstances and not rely on faith. This is a, an example of trusting in the Lord. By contrast, is when Jesus came walking, came walking on the water to the disciples in the middle of the storm, remember? He, sent the, he, he fed the 5,000, taught a mass of people, sent the disciples out into the sea, and then a storm came. Jesus comes walking in the middle of the night. They think they're dying, but then somebody recognizes it, it's the Lord. And so what does Simon Peter do? Lord, if that's really you, bid me come and I'll come. And so Peter gets out and he starts walking on the water. Jesus said, come. Peter gets out and starts walking on the water. And so what does Peter do? When he sees the wind, he was afraid, Matthew 14, and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him. Now listen to what Jesus said to him. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? A great illustration of what it means to look at the circumstances of life and take our eyes off of the Lord and not live by faith, walk by faith. And let's be clear here, we only have the capacity to believe on God because of redemption that comes from Christ. He's made us new, he's, he's redeemed us from our sin, and he's given us new life in Christ. And so we have to believe rightly if we're going to trust in the Lord. And then also, we have to behave rightly. Look at verse 3, second half. First statement, trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord and do good. This is a, this is a a word, doing good is a word of performance, is a word of action. Our behavior, the way that we act, either confirms what we believe or it conflicts with what we say we believe. And so we can say, I trust in God. But if we don't behave like we trust in God, what we're saying makes no sense. We're contradicting ourselves. And so our behavior has to confirm what we're saying with it, that we believe. It's what James was pointing to in James 2.17. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's pointless. It's no good. Now, what, what paralyzes us often in our Christian walk? I think we can identify here with, with Psalm 37.3. Fear and worry. Fear and worry often leave us paralyzed. Fear and worry often leave us paralyzed in our walk with Christ. If we are trusting in the Lord, however, we're to leave no room for fear, no room for worry. And what's the result of believing rightly and behaving rightly, with, of trusting in the Lord and doing good? It's the second half of verse 3. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. We get to feast on the riches of God's grace. Literally, I mean, literally. What 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 the writer says here is: He feed on faithfulness, be fed in truth, live securely in the safekeeping of God, enjoy safe pasture. And obviously, the picture here is of the Lord as our shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd; He cares for us, He protects us, He provides for us. Brother and sister, do you really believe that the Lord loves you? Pause for a moment and just. Ponder the reality. The Lord loves you. If you are His. If you've repented and believed on the Lord Jesus. He loves you. And He cares for you. And He keeps you. And He protects you. And so we trust in Him. We trust in the Lord and we do good. We dwell in the land and we befriend faithfulness. So the first thing we have to do is we trust in the Lord. Secondly, David points us to, we're to delight in the Lord. We're to trust in the Lord and we are to delight in the Lord. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you desires of your heart. And so here we have a principle and a promise. The principle is, delight yourself in the Lord. There's a command here. And the word delight means to enjoy, to take pleasure and enjoyment in an object and just the command just the word itself to delight implies that there is something to be desired in this object and it's a word of desire and a word of joy and so delight yourself in the lord is an expression of the heart the principle here is a principle of the heart it's not just mental framework in which we say okay yes i believe all this to be true checking off all these mental boxes and so we just assent to this base knowledge no the The the, the language here points to that which we believe, but also that which we feel. Not just what we know, but also how we love. It's an expression of the heart, or to use a word that we use often here, devotion. It's an expression of devotion. It's not just knowing the right things about God, but also feeling the right way toward God. It's an obedience, not just of action, but also an an obedience of the heart. The New Testament language that, that will be used similar to this is that of rejoice. We're rejoicing, we're delighting. We're expressing joy. And so Philippians 3.1, Paul says, My brothers rejoice in the Lord. Later in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I I say rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. Can you say that you delight in the Lord? Do you truly delight in the one who has saved your soul? How much do you think about him? How often do you think about him? Is he the focus of your attention? Or is the Lord just some mere afterthought? Do you call out to Him only when you need Him? Or do you desire to constantly commune with Him? Delight yourself in the Lord. James Boyce makes this comment on the phrase here. The main reason many apparent Christians do not delight in God is that they do not know Him very well. And the reason they do not know Him well is that they do not spend time with Him. Time spent with the Lord is directly proportional to our growth and devotion toward the Lord. And so when we are diligent and when we are disciplined in cultivating and working on our walk with Christ, this does take time and effort, our delight toward God and our delight in God increases and deepens. And so think about it. When we learn more about the love of God, what is our response? Love. We love Him more. When when we learn more about His love, we love Him more. When we learn more about the power of God, what is our response? We trust Him. We know that the one who said, Let there be light and there was light sovereignly rules over our lives. It's power. And so when we learn about this power, we trust him. When we learn more about his forgiveness, what do we do? We pursue holiness more and on and on. And so the principle here is to delight yourself in the Lord. And then there's the promise, the promise in verse four, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so the principle is delight in the Lord. You have to delight yourself in the Lord. The Lord has to be supreme in your life. Or the second half of the verse doesn't work. So don't go claiming second half of Psalm 37.4 without working hard on Psalm 37.4a. He will give you the desires of your heart. The principle is delight yourself in the Lord. And the promise is you get the desires of your heart. Now to be clear, this is not some prosperity theology position that's tucked away neatly in the Psalms. And it just makes good sense. Because according to the full teaching of verse 4 in Psalm 37 as a whole, your deepest desire, my deepest desire must be God. Must be God. And our desire toward God is not directed toward Him just because of what we can get out of Him. Or just because of the benefits that we receive from Him. Our desire is directed toward God for God. You see how this is totally different. It's not just that I love God because He's going to do all of these great things for me. No, I love God for God. One who delights in the Lord will have desires that conform to God's will for their lives, and so then God will grant their requests. It's what Jesus was pointing to in Matthew six thirty three seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Isn't it true that so often we just direct love toward God because of his benefits because of the good things that we get out of the gig. Which is, in essence, idolatry. It's where we have begun to elevate the gifts higher than the giver. And so when we delight ourselves in the Lord, we're setting our minds' attention, our hearts' affection upon God Himself for the sake of God. And trusting that whatever benefits are best for me, He will bring into my life. He will bring into my heart and into my mind. John Calvin put it this way, commenting on the same verse. This does not imply that the godly immediately obtain whatever their fancy may suggest to them. Nor would it be for their profit that God should grant them all their vain desires. The meaning simply is that if we stay our minds wholly upon God. Instead of allowing our imaginations like others to roam after idle and frivolous fancies. All other things will be bestowed on us in due season. Spurgeon Makes this comment, men who delight in God, desire or ask for nothing but what will please God. Like, God has this thing rigged. He tells us, delight yourself in me and your desires are going to align with my desire. And then it's go time. It's on. So how does this work? When we delight in God, we begin to love what he loves and we begin to hate what he hates. We love what God loves and we hate what God hates. So, example, sin. Let's think about sin. God hates sin. And when we are growing in our delighting toward God, in our in our love relationship with God, we begin to be more and more repulsed by sin. Hopefully you can amen this experience, like this, this practical reality that, that though we are not sinless, when we do commit sin, there's, there's a revulsion that happens within us. And that's the Holy Spirit within us saying, no, this is not going to have any place in you. We, we begin to be repulsed by this sin. And the reason why is not because sin just makes us nauseous. It's because God has created within us a love for holiness. He's given us a love for holiness. And so as our love for holiness, as we're delighting ourselves in the Lord, our love for holiness is growing, our perspective and revulsion towards sin is increasing as well. Why? Because the desires of our heart change. We are made new and we belong to God. He removes that heart of stone. He gives us a new heart. And this new heart is complete with affections that are drawn toward him. Which means we're going to be drawn toward the same things that God loves. And so do you trust in the Lord? And also, do you delight in the Lord? Which brings us to the third checkup point here. And it's in verse 5. We are to commit to the Lord. Commit to the Lord. Verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And he will act. You see, verses 3 and 4 only work if we make five, verse 5 true. And verse 5 actually serves as a as a diagnostic for us to, to let us know whether verses 3 and 4 are happening in our lives. And so there's a, there's a point of commitment here, verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Literally, the, the word commitment would be translated to roll away, to cast your life upon God. And this is a command that we are to obey. Commit your way to the Lord. Now, the interesting thing about commitment. Commitment is driven by priority. This is, this is crucial for us to understand. Commitment is driven by priority. Often our root issue isn't just a commitment issue, but it's a priority issue. Here's, here's why this is true. Because whatever is most important in our lives, whatever has priority in our lives, gets our commitment. Right? And so when he says, commit your way to the Lord... He's saying prioritize God in your life. God must have primary place in your life, in your mind, in your heart. And so that which is given commitment is that which we place priority on. We place value on as the most important thing in our lives or person in our lives. Commit your way to the Lord. So there's commitment, but there's also confidence here in verse 5. Trust in Him. And he will act. He goes back to the same concept in verse 3. Trust in the Lord. It says in verse 5, trust in him and he will act. It comes back to this. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. When we trust in God, we can know and believe that he acts on our behalf. He, God is not passively in the heavens just watching things unfold in our lives. He's not sitting in his throne room and wondering what's going to happen next for you. He's not just sitting up there watching everything play out in real time. God sees past, present, future now, knows how everything is going to unfold, and is providentially working in the events of your life to bring most glory to the Lord Jesus. And so we have this confidence, this this trusting in Him, and He will act. He will act in the way that brings Him most glory. Psalm fifty five, twenty two, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Proverbs sixteen, three, commit your work to the Lord, your plans will be established. All of our fear, all of our worry, all of our envy, all of our stress, all have one source. Lack of confidence in God. Lack of confidence in God. And hear, hear me clearly. I'm not I'm not dismissing the reality of anxiety and fear and worry and guilt in our lives it's it's a point of sanctification for us right and on this side of heaven we will wrestle we will fight this fight until we are made new in christ eternally but at the at the root of these issues is a lack of confidence in god and so that's why it says commit your way to the lord Commit your way to the Lord. Why not commit your way to the one who providentially reigns over all things to bring himself most glory? Why not commit yourself to the one who loves you far more deeply than you can ever imagine and therefore cares for you, protects you, and guides you? And so, brother and sister, you can either try to run your life on your own or you can trust God to run it. He loves you. He cares for you. You can trust Him. You can trust him. Trust in the Lord. And he will act. And then the final principle here is is in verse 6. Where we're to trust God with the results. Trust God with the results. Our challenge is with the result. Alright, so yes, I affirm. I'm to delight myself in the Lord. I'm to trust in the Lord. I'm to commit my way to the Lord. Yes. How's that actually going to play out? It seems like that. It probably means that some things are going to have to change. That I'm going to have to give up some things. I'm going to have to take, up, take on some things. And then comes verse 6 and helps us to, to just resolve that issue in our hearts and minds. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. The point of verse 6 is trust God. Trust God with the results. You can trust God with the results. He knows better than you. And if you knew that God had all of your life planned, would you trust Him? He cares for you. He is God and we are not. That's the way Simon Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Because He cares for You trust God with the results. And so a spiritual checkup. How exactly are you doing? Are you trusting in the Lord? Are you delighting yourself in the Lord? Are you committing your way to the Lord? And then are you trusting the Lord with the results? Seems awfully simple. Lived out in real time. Most days it seems complex. (laughs) And if we are honest with one another... All too often we fail more than we succeed in this arena. But the teachings of Scripture just come and just remind us of our necessity for the gospel, our necessity for of Christ, that we are to trust in Him, we're to delight ourselves in Him, we're to commit our way to Him. So, spiritual checkup, how are you doing? A follow-up list of diagnostic questions just the way that we began. One, what is your view towards sin and holiness? Do you view some sins as Okay. They're just not the big ones. Well, if you view some sins as being okay, then you're not delighting yourself in the Lord. Because the Lord does not delight in sin. The Lord delights in holiness. If your desire is to be free from all sin and to fight sin as hard and as diligently as you can for God's glory, then there's a good indication you're growing in holiness and delighting yourself in the Lord. What about your devotion time with the Lord? What does it look like? Does the devotion time with the Lord even exist? Do you spend time consistently in the Word and in prayer, communing with your Father who loves you? How how do you feel toward the body of Christ, the church? How do you feel toward this one-anotherness that God has put together here? A rather broad question, but a necessary diagnostic question. What or who has priority in your life? What is it that has priority in your life? Is it your family? noble job providing noble success promotion sure but what has priority in your life is it god or is it stuff and in fact when god has priority in our lives everything else falls into place you understand this right like when god has priority in my life i know how to love my wife like christ loved the church I know how to raise my children. I know how to pastor my church. I know how to live as a citizen in this community. And so God must have priority. What has priority in your life? Another question, uh, maybe a more probing question, is where do you find true satisfaction? Where do you find true satisfaction? Or do you even find true satisfaction? Or are you just searching for satisfaction? Where do you find true, sa- you find true satisfaction? Well, how do I know? Two ways, what do you talk about most and what do you think about most? What do you talk about most? What do you think about most? Whatever you talk about most, whatever you think about most is probably where you're finding your true satisfaction. And so in a spiritual checkup moment where we're letting the the word of God be a mirror against which we evaluate our lives. What we do is we ask God to change our heart. Surely for all of us, even as I'm preaching the message, the Lord is resounding things within me that need to be fixed, need to be made right. Surely for all of us, God has placed his divine sovereign finger by the Holy Spirit and the authority of the word on something, some issue that keeps us from delighting ourselves in the Lord. That keeps us from delighting in God just for the sake of God. Knowing He is supreme and of infinite worth and value. And so what do we do? We repent. We ask God to change our hearts. To make us new in Christ yet again. Psalm 34, 8 Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Church, when we've When we've truly tasted of Christ. When we have truly feasted on the riches of God's grace. I mean, just isn't it true that everything else pales in comparison? We have this infinitely eternal spiritual feast before us in Christ. And still we're prone to go and chase after this other stuff. And to give priority where priority is not due. We are constantly placing idols in our lives. And God in His kind providence comes and crushes those idols. And sometimes He does that, sometimes He does that through circumstance, through bringing us through a a situation. Sometimes it happens through a, a confrontation from a loving brother or sister. Sometimes it happens in a moment like this where we're all sitting under the teaching of the Word and the Holy Spirit is pointing out things in our lives of which we need to repent. And we all come to the common ground of dependency. Dependency. All of Psalm 37 verses 1 through 6 is about God. Exalting God. Glorifying God. And we're dependent on Him. And so here's... Here's what we're going to do now. In a minute, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And as we're singing, I invite us as a church to pray. And you're welcome to sing. Certainly, it's a familiar song. You'll know the words. But you're also free to pray. And repent rightly. If the Lord has impressed upon you some particular issue that you need to repent about, then repent. But then also... You need to know that you're free to go to one another. If there's just an area in which you need help, that you just say, I need strength here. Will you pray with me? Like, we can move this way as we're delighting ourselves in the Lord. Because while you think that you're the only one who's following hard after Jesus, you're not. We all are. And by God's providence, we're all failing forward. And we fail forward together. And so if you, if you truly need someone to come alongside you and, and pray with you, pray for you, then, then do that. If, if you're paralyzed by worry or, or fear, if you're entrenched in some sin, you don't have to divulge details. Just go to a brother or sister that you trust and know and just say, hey, will you pray with me? If you don't know anybody, just go to somebody and say, hey, will you pray with me? And we'll pray with you. Let's pray and we'll sing together. Father in heaven. Lord, we we so need you. Lord, we are so quick to pursue our own path. Knowing full well that when we pursue our own path, we're pursuing it for our own glory. And Father, we... Are reminded from these few verses of Psalm 37. Lord, that we do need you. And, Lord, you, you give us the privilege to delight in you, to trust you, to commit our work to you. And so Father, help us to repent now in these moments. Lord, help us to, to encourage one another. Lord, We're necessary and profitable to pray with one another and for one another. Father, give us, give us boldness to say that we don't have it all together. And that we, that we all need Christ. Lord, we love you. Be pleased as we respond to your word and as we sing to your glorious name. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.